When it comes to healthcare in the United States, we have an ailing patient, and that patient is the entire system itself. From the high cost of care to complicated insurance plans to political infighting, our country's healthcare is struggling. On this episode of The Best of Health, we'll talk with two medical experts about these issues and try to answer the question Is America simply sick or is it completely broken? There are few things more important to your life than your health. You want the best of it. We want the best of it for you. That's why we're giving you the Best of Health podcast, where we cover a number of healthcare issues that affect you, your family, as well as the physicians, providers, and staff that help you on your healthcare journey, right here at Confluence Health. I'm Clint Strand, and to talk about all of this in our Best of Health podcast, we're talking with Confluence Health CEO, Dr. Peter Rutherford, and Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Stuart Freed. Dr. Freed, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Clint. Dr. Rutherford, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Clint. All right, so let's get into the basics here. Let's define what healthcare really is in the United States. I mean, is it the best for the most? Is it the most for the worst off? Are we talking hero medicine, the extensive measures we go to save those people that are in the most dire straits, or is it most of one and a bit of the other? Help us out with this. Whichever one of you want to start. Well, I guess I'll start, Clint. All right, I, Dr. Rutherford. I think, I think it's a little bit of a bunch of things. As mo- life as mostly m- is, right? As life mostly is. But okay. I, when I think about healthcare, I, I look at it as anything that contributes to the improvement of an, an individual's health or their quality of life. And if we do that to a group of individuals, then we have done it to a population. And there are really, in my mind, three main buckets of that. Which are the buckets? Three buckets. So the first one is the maintenance of an individual's current health. And I would argue that includes things like preventative services, like vaccinations, getting your blood pressure checked, and so on. The other are screening services in that bucket, which is things like, am I getting my mammograms? Am I getting my colon cancer screening? And so on. The second main bucket is addressing acute health conditions. So I'm doing fine, and then all of a sudden something happens. I break my leg, I get pneumonia, whatever. And it's a system to get me back to my normal good level of functioning. And then the third group is how we manage chronic or progressive health conditions. So what do we do to keep a diabetic in as good a control as we can? How do we manage heart failure? How do we manage arthritis and keep people as functional and productive as they can be in contributing to the well-being of a community? So if I'm hearing you right, your definition of healthcare is treating each person where they live in each one of those three buckets, uh, maintenance or preventative, emergent, acute care, and taking care of chronic conditions, taking care of each person, and in that way, we're going to take care of the whole. Is it, am, I, am I reading you correctly? Yes. And as we will probably talk in a bit here, it isn't all health care. Okay. That's what's commonly known as a tease. We'll get to that in just a second. Dr. Freed, do you concur? Do you have a slightly different definition? I concur with Peter that it is a mix. Uh, the other spin I'd take on it is the challenge I think we have in America is that the, the majority of the investment we've made in the American medical machine, if you will, is in rescuing those extremely sick patients. And so both in terms of time, energy, money, and I would say attention from the public is on those things. And so the other two categories that Dr. Rutherford talks about limit our ability 
those other two categories kind of get put in the back on the back burner many times uh, because of this gigantic investment we've made in in doing the most we can for a very few and and so this whole idea of doing the best for the most is really challenged by that investment so I'm going to follow up that statement with a question. Understanding that, would you characterize our healthcare system as simply sick or is it just broken? I think every system is designed perfectly to get the results it gets. That's a quote from Deming. And and the reality is <laughs> our system's delivering exactly what it was designed to do, which is to deliver high energy care for very very sick people, but to also deliver this other chronic care and preventive care, but almost as an afterthought in terms of investments made. And so we're trying to catch up in terms of the attention we've we've really given uh, our society to these very, very acute things. Well, I have a quote, uh, not a quote, but a stat, Dr. Rutherford, that as we were talking about this really illustrates kind of what Dr. Freed is talking about. I heard that as far as the disparities in usage for healthcare, that 5% of the folks in America use 50% of the resources. Does that surprise you? No, I think it's spot on true. It's all of our experience with our self-insured population, with our payment methodologies where we are at full risk capitation. That is the numbers. It's one of the reasons why healthcare is almost 20% of our GDP, our gross domestic product. For every dollar that we spend, 20 cents of it goes to our healthcare. So understood that we are spending a lot of money, a huge amount of this fiscal pie to take care of this very small slice that still doesn't answer the question for someone who needs something like, say, an EpiPen for their allergic reactions, they're spending $300 for something that they literally need just in case to keep them alive. What would you say to someone who says, well, that doesn't take care of my question. Why does that cost that much? Well, I'll try to answer that one with my own perspectives. I think it is, again, a multitude of things that we, to follow up on Stu's point, have designed in our pricing mechanism for pharmaceuticals in this country. So we have said as a federal government that we will not negotiate drug prices. So the Medicare payment system pays for drugs at whatever the manufacturer or the selling agent says they're going to cost. They say, this is what it costs. We say, okay, here's the money. That's correct. Okay. Number two is we have justified it in some ways on the research and development costs, saying that we want innovation in this country. We want to lead innovation. And it is expensive to bring drugs to market. And so we're for the ones that we do bring to market, we're going to pay for the research and development of drugs where it did not work or was not a successful medication. Creating new and novel drugs costs money. We're, this is how we pay for it on the front end. Correct. Okay. And, and by we, we mean the United States. Yes. And other countries, by their negotiating, by their price fixing, have said we're not going to contribute as much to that research and development cost. So we're footing the bill for research and development, essentially. Some would argue that we are footing more of the bill than the number of dr- amount of the medication that is sold in our country. Okay, I like the way you answered that. The third piece is marketing. How long can you sit and watch television right now or read a magazine and not find an advertisement for some medication? You make a good point. They're all over the place. And then lastly, my cynical piece of this is where do those profits go? They go into my 401k retirement plan where I have, I don't know what I've got for stocks, but I'm sure I've got pharmaceuticals somewhere in one of these mutual funds. 
that's where those returns are going. They're going to the shareholders. These are not nonprofits. These are for-profit Correct. ventures that need to create a return on investment for their stakeholders, for their shareholders. Correct. Correct. So in the meantime, that's why you're hearing about ask your doctor about fill in the blank. That's correct. As they have the images of happy people as these god-awful side effects roll along the screens. And then if you look up the prices for those medications that are advertised on television or in a magazine at this moment, you will be aghast at the prices of them. Okay. So you, you, you looked like you wanted to add something. Well, the only other thing I think that people should know is the majority, um, over 75% of those advertised drugs are Me Too drugs. These are not novel drugs. These are not drugs that aren't, that there isn't some other form of a very similar medication already on the market. There's a drug on the market that's already successful. That's why they came up with another one just like it or very similar branded somewhat differently, maybe does a little bit different thing, but it's already successful. So it's it's like selling another pickup truck. They're looking at getting another piece of that pie. Correct. These okay. are not, for the most part, these are not novel medications. So we've talked about the role that pharmaceutical companies play. We've talked about the role that the health system and the way it's currently designed plays. And this next question, it risks sounding like a blame the victim question, and it's not. But I still need to ask it, how much of a responsibility does the patient have in the costs being as high as they are? Dr. Freed, I'll start with you. Well, let's, let's be honest. We're, we're selling a service here that virtually no one can afford to buy. Yeah. But the challenge is we often take very little responsibility for our own health as we go along. Uh, some do, so I don't want to say that no one does, but there is a lot of neglect that goes on in the United States. But one of the other big challenges is that we don't want to die. I mean, like, ever. That feels like an obvious Correct. thing to say. Yeah. <laughs> but the reality is that's kind of an unrealistic expectation. And so the other thing that happens is we avoid that conversation. And it turns out that's really, really an important conversation to have is that all of our lives are going to end. And some of the best examples of what I would consider really high value care, where the patient's experience has been excellent and the quality of care has been excellent and the cost has dropped significantly, are in these communities in Wisconsin, where they really focused primarily on that. How do we have that conversation early so that we're not prolonging life when someone doesn't want it and we're not developing treatments that people really don't want to take because we, we know what they want? Dr. Rutherford and Dr. Freed, I'm seeing some threads come together here. When you're talking about that, when you're talking about these conversations that are delayed, that require folks when they're in that critical moment at the end of life, whenever life is, to direct their doctor to take extraordinary measures to give them one more day when those measures cost so much money, when we're talking about patient responsibility, it all comes back to having that conversation so those extraordinary measures don't need to be part of the conversation in right. that moment. Does that make sense? Yeah, it isn't. I don't want to just lay this on patients. It's us too. It's right. hard for us to have these conversations. But the reality is when we do, we see better healthcare occur. There's a statistic I read not too long ago that 80% of Americans want to die at home when we do die, but barely 20% of us do. That's stunning. Yeah. That really feels like something that we really want, but we aren't really going through the emotional and psychological steps necessary to make sure that we've arrived at that point when the time comes. Right. Dr. Rutherford? So I, I would just add a couple things. I think none of us have ever died before, and so we don't know what the death process is like, and so we are fearful of it. So we look for markers of that in our, or in our life, and we watch television. 
How many people die from CPR on TV? I think it's 100% successful, Peter. Yes. <laughs> what is the success rate in the field? Oh, man. You're going to pop my bubble now, aren't you? What is the success rate in the field? Some of the best in the country to survive is in King County, and it's at about 40%. About 40%. Gets to the hospital. 40% gets to the hospital. Yes. Right. Alive. I almost don't want to ask what the percentage is once they're inside the hospital because that's... Oh, uh, less than that. Less than that. So you're telling me... That, that, that survive to go back to the life that they had prior to the event. So you're telling me that the show I watched at 8 p.m. on Mondays lied to me all these years. They showed you the positive aspects of this. Sure. Another example is look at some recent people who have entered the fight for cancer. Dr. Freed and I were talking about this before the tape started rolling, the semantics of healthcare, the fight against cancer, be a warrior, I don't want to step all over you, keep going. We don't accept the reality of the conditions that we have. Absolutely true. And yes, I'm not saying we shouldn't treat people by any means, but we need to do it with our eyes wide open and looking at the relative potential benefit versus the cost. And you talked about the cost in dollars. I would argue the cost is equally high in emotion, psychological perspective, family effort, family stress of seeing this, quote, battle go on. Dignity. Dignity. Yeah. And those are the types of costs that you simply can't wipe away with a stroke of a pen on a checkbook. Certainly. Absolutely not. But it's hard, though. It's hard for a patient who hasn't thought about this. When does giving up turn into don't give up? When does that turn into giving yourself the best moments that you can before the inevitable? And it is inevitable. And I think it goes back to the discussion that Stu had a minute ago around the cities in Wisconsin. It's what are your goals for your life when you get to that point? So I'd like to move on for just a moment here because there's one element to this that we haven't talked about at all. And it is a huge one. We've talked about the role that the healthcare system plays. We talked about the role that the patient plays. We have not yet talked about, and we could spend the whole podcast talking about this, the insurance system. What role do they have in our state of affairs? And I know we're going to need to fly at a 30,000 foot level and not drown in the details here, but as a non-expert, it seems to me like it's somewhat of a conflict to have our care approved by companies whose first responsibility is to their shareholders and not necessarily the people who are covered by them. What do you think, Dr. Rutherford? So I think we need to go back and say, what is the role, what what role do we want, quote, insurance to play? Okay. And to me, it's to help share risk. I'm paying insurance that if I need it, I will hopefully have it, but I'm recognizing if I don't use it, I'm helping you, Clint, or you, Stu, deal with the expenses of your health care. The rising financial tide is carrying all boats here. Correct. Okay. So if you come at it from that perspective, then you say there is a role for someone to assure that the resources we have in healthcare are being used appropriately by effectiveness and cost efficiency. Thanks, Dr. Rutherford. Dr. Freed, would you share that assessment? Yeah, I think uh, going back to when healthcare insurance was devised, it was initially when it really took off. It was just post-World War II. And healthcare insurance really was a way for employers to attract workers after they came back from the war. Healthcare benefits was a new thing. And it was a way to attract these kind of rare uh, rare workers they were all competing for. 
that's morphed over time. And like Peter said, initially, uh, all healthcare insurance was kind of in that first dollar sort of style where we'll take the risk, we'll mitigate the risk, we'll kind of spread that out for you. What's happened over the last several years is more and more large employers take full risk themselves. So your employer is the one taking the financial risk for the health care of their employees. So now the healthcare insurance company is really a, an administrator of that risk. So what they see their responsibility is is, a, is to protect the health care dollars of the company, of the employer. So I think that what we have to look at is if because your question implies, what voice do we have? What what choice do we have? What leverage do we have as consumers? And from my standpoint, as providers of care, I think that really lies in having a greater or closer relationship with the purchases of care, not the payers, not the insurance company. It's with those employers. We have to have that dialogue because that's really where this exchange is taking place. It's with it's with American business. It isn't with us. It isn't with John Q. Public. That's who gets advertised to. But really, the contract both the real contract and almost the emotional fiduciary contract is with that employer. Interesting stuff. Dr. Rutherford, would you like to follow up on that? or? Yeah, I, I think the one thing I would add regarding employers is we've had a lot of discussion in this country as to who should be involved in health insurance. And I think there is a benefit to having an employer involved because the real goal is that you maintain people's health so that they are productive members of our society. And if the employer is involved, there is an assumption that the healthcare will improve people's health or maintain their health so that they are able to remain a productive participant in whatever business they are being employed by. And I think that is something that is different than a government-mandated or government-provided insurance where it's, there is no sense of accountability to anyone. Really interesting. And that actually plays into what our next podcast topic will be. Now that we've laid the groundwork, what exactly can we do about this? Will we stay with a more business approach where a person's place of work is in partnership with the person to provide health insurance? Are we going more in a single payer direction or Medicare for all? Is that the way to go? And just as importantly, can we have a conversation about all of this as a nation about solutions without everyone getting politically tribal right from the get go, which is going to be a tough ask. But if we want answers, it's what we'll have to do. Part two on the way in just a bit. But in the meantime, Dr. Stuart Freed, Dr. Peter Rutherford, thank you so much for sitting down with us. And we look forward to continuing this conversation. It's a pleasure. Clint. Thanks very much. Clint. Hey, thanks. Well, this conversation is over, but more is on the way. So like us, subscribe and visit us at confluencehealth.org. I'm Clint Strand for Confluence Health, wishing you the best of health.